see you soon. Wow. Great to see that face and hear that voice in this room again. I love the little facial hair he's grown while he's been gone. I guess you can't shave when you're lost in the woods. <laughs> he's got... You know, friends, it was mentioned last week that at Ron's request, we've restructured our leadership team here uh, at Heights uh, in a way that will allow him to continue thriving and serving here, but shares some of the responsibility among a broader group. John explained that last week. If you'd like, if you weren't here last week, you'll want to find that sermon on our uh, Heights Church on Vimeo, um, and you'll want to get caught up. We also have a document we've written up to explain the new structure for those of you who are interested. It's at the connections counter on the left as you go out into the lobby. So pick that up and you'll know what things are going to be happening here and how we're going to move forward uh, starting uh, March 5th when Ron gets back with us. You know, I was here yesterday for a little while for a pretty special conference. Some of you might have been able to join us as well. It was called Wait No More. This is one of four conferences every year that Focus on the Family puts on to encourage churches to step up to the foster and adoption crisis that is so common in our country, especially here in our state. We are glad to host this conference for all of northern Arizona. But the stories were, were gripping. You know, hearing a, a adults speaking about their childhood when they themselves were foster children, the homes or, or lack of homes that they were born into, what they experienced as kids is just heart-rending and, and painful to hear. And especially when you realize these kids, we can't get a home for so many of these kids. And there's, there's people who have more homes than they know what to do with. There's celebrities who are running around, flying around the country, spending money right and left. You know, a, a house sold in New York City this year for this week for $100 million for a house. Now, it's in New York, so it was a five-bedroom, three-bath. But that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> I mean, when you compare the, what so many people have so much, and let's face it, sometimes they aren't all that pleasant a person, but they got all this stuff, and you got these stories of these kids raised in misery and, and, and group homes and, uh, and bouncing from place to place. Have you ever gotten to the point where you look at the unfairness of it all and just say, what's going on? How can we connect these dots? How, how can we, this just, it just doesn't, how can, how can me or my loved ones be sick as, as good as they are and as loving as they are? And you got these people on TV who are just mean and rotten and look at all the stuff that they've got. How come, how come the, the jerk gets the promotion and the good people lag behind? Lord, did you ever get to the point where you just kind of want to give up? When you look at how unfair life can be. Well, if you're answering yes to that in any way, I can tell you that you are not alone you're not alone in this room, I'm sure, but you're also not alone among the people who wrote the pages of Scripture. You're not alone, alone among people who God used to write this book that we find so much wisdom in. And I want to introduce you this morning to somebody who will take us on a little voyage today, a personal journey. This man's name is Asaph. Asaph takes us back into the Old Testament days, way before Jesus. Takes us back into the days of King David, in fact, when Israel was at its height Asaph was one of three men that David himself selected to be worship leaders in the temple. And although when we think of the Psalms, we tend to think of King David, you might not be aware that he wrote only about half of those 150 Psalms. Several others wrote the other ones, and Asaph is the man God used to write a dozen of these Psalms. And we're going to look at one special one today, one that is frankly brutally honest a psalm in which we find this man Asaph opening a window into his soul and taking us on this intensely personal journey. It's a journey that almost destroyed him. It's a journey that ultimately transformed him. 
And it's a journey that for the next half hour, we're going to take with him. And every journey has a destination. So here's where this journey ought to take us. The bad guys lose. God wins. And when we have him, nothing else comes close. That's where we'll end up, but it's going to take us a little while to get there. Lord, would you show us how to get there? Would you use your word, inspired by your spirit, written by this man Asaph, to speak into our hearts in ways that will change us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Psalm 73, if you would. That is the psalm where we're going to camp for almost all of our time here today. It actually begins with kind of a generic, encouraging statement before it takes us off into the weeds of the heart of a very, very discouraged man. Let's read just the beginning of this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a generic affirmation. He knows this is true intellectually. But now he's going to open his heart and show us what he's wrestling with. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Click. You guys will have to do that, I think. Go ahead, next slide, guys. This thing comes and goes. They have no struggles, these wicked. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. You can hear what's going on here. This guy is bummed. He is discouraged. He's diagnosed a problem. Go back a slide if you would. He's diagnosed his problem that he has a problem with envy. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's not fair. It's not fair that they get all that they get and that their lives are so easy and people look up to them and they get the leadership roles and they get this and they get that. And it's not fair, and I envied them. I was jealous of them. So again, it gives you an idea of where he's going at the beginning of the psalm. But he also gives us a hint of the end of the story when he says, almost. My feet had almost slipped. It's going to end in a good place. This destination is taking us to a place he's glad to get to, that we will be glad to get to as well. But along the way, let's be honest, along with Asaph, sometimes life just doesn't make sense. And we read the first six verses of it, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff. We won't read every verse, but here's a summary of it. He looks at these people and says, look how easy their lives are. Even though they mock God, even though they make fun of the creator of the universe, nothing happens to them. They don't suffer. They don't get sick. They abuse people, but don't pay for it. They're all full of themselves and it works. He says later that they, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. The people who follow these guys also benefit from being like them. They're carefree and, and they get richer every day. And he gets so discouraged as he looks around and sees how things work. He's even tempted to give up and, and, and blend in. Go to the next slide if you would. Verse 13 and 14 say this. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. And have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. Boy, do you hear the discouragement in his voice? And he's saying, why bother? In vain I keep myself pure. In vain I walk the line. In vain, it doesn't bring me anything. It's worthless. Why bother? It's time to give up. He got right to the edge of what we'd have to call an abyss. If... If I get all the 
If they get all the stuff and I get all the pain, why bother? Why not be like them to get all the stuff? What's the use of obeying God if it doesn't get me what I want? It doesn't get me what I need. And, and if this is what life is, if this is what I have to do to get along in this world, he says, I'm right on the edge. He's looking into the abyss saying, I don't want to be that kind of person, but I'm willing to consider it if it makes my life easier. If my life could be a little bit like theirs, then maybe, just maybe, it's, it's, it's worth it. You, you sense the discouragement. You hear the frustration. And my question is, can you relate to this? Have you ever looked around and read the news and, and flipped through websites and, and, and gotten, even in your place of work or maybe in your own family, you're saying, I, I don't get it. Why does, why does this happen like this? Why do people like that end up where they are? It's not fair. And if you've even gotten to the point of saying, why bother resisting when that's how things work in this world, then again, you've got a friend in Asaph. He gets you, and you get him, and we understand maybe where he's coming from. But right in the middle of the psalm, pretty much at the halfway point, there's a big turning point. Look at verse 15. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. First he's saying, well, I'm kind of glad I didn't talk too much about this because I, I probably would have led people astray. But then he says, you know, I tried to understand all this and it troubled me deeply. Now, yes, he's trying to understand it, but it, you might have noticed, and if you read every verse, you would notice it probably, there's something missing in his attempt to understand all this. God isn't mentioned at all. In the first 14 verses, there's no God, there's no prayer, there's no reference. To the only time he's mentioned is when it talks about the bad guys mocking him. So what that means is Asaph, at this point in his discouragement, is trying to understand, but he's doing it through his own wisdom. He's doing it according to his own understanding. And he's trying to connect the dots without turning to God for help. Bad idea, friends. Because when you've got access to a holy, righteous, wise God, you need to include him in these things. And, and, and he's recognizing this man is that, wow, I, I, I really messed up. I've, I tried to understand it, and the word troubled actually means oppressed. My inability to understand the fairness of it all was oppressive, and it made my heart heavy. So, friends, we, we see now he's at this turning point, and the turning point happens in verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Turning point. Everything's going to change from here on. Because here's this man whose job it was to lead worship in the sanctuary. His job was to make sure the people of Israel understood who God was and how they could stand in his presence and sing to him like we just did. And now, finally, he turns to God and says, I'm going to bring God into the mix. So he goes to the sanctuary. I entered the sanctuary. What did he find when he got to the temple of God? He found a place where God was honored and worshipped the way he alone deserves. He found a place where the word of God was put into practice. He found a place where the glory of God was sought after and elevated. He found a God-centered place, not a man-centered place. All of the beginning of the psalm is uniquely man-centered. And he goes to the temple and says, oh, God's here too. 
Maybe I should include him (laughs) in my reflections. He found a new perspective on life in general and his life specifically, but a perspective now that includes God. It's amazing when you see, we're going to read every verse from here out. You're going to see that where the first half of the psalm, there was no mention of God and no prayer whatsoever. Nothing directed to God. From here out, every single verse is a prayer. Every single verse is talking to God, saying something true about him to him. It changes from third person to second person. You, God. Always a good reflex, friends. When we're getting discouraged, we're getting frustrated, to turn to him and start talking to him, not about the world without him. And you'll see, we'll see, as we continue this journey with Asaph, what kind of a difference that makes. First of all, he understands that one day... God's going to step in and make it right. Look at the next verse, 18. Surely you, there's the prayer now, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Now he's praying. Now he's turning to God with his frustration. And he's getting a different perspective on it. A perspective that reminds him, no, God doesn't put up with this stuff forever. A day will come when God will step in and make it right. That might not come on our timing. It probably doesn't. We might not even be alive to see it. But suddenly with this big picture eternal perspective, Asaph knows God's not going to put up with this kind of stuff forever. It's the same reassurance Habakkuk got. Habakkuk, my favorite Old Testament prophet, who complained to God. You might remember, God, why do you tolerate? Why do you wait so long to step in and make things right? And God says, well, I am going to step in. I'm going to do it through these bad guys, the Babylonians. They're going to come and stomp on my people. And Habakkuk says, God, no, do something, but not that. You you can't, how could you get your hands dirty with that? How can you, these people are evil and more wicked than us. And God says to him, the day will come. They'll pay for what they're going to do. They'll be held responsible. And it's okay for us to yearn for that day. It's even righteous to yearn for that day when the abusers and the exploiters and the killers and the shooters will pay for what they do. It's okay to love justice enough to yearn for that day and even to cry out, Lord, how long? How long do we wait until you say enough? It reflects a yearning in our hearts that we want God to be found true and all men liars. The day will come, and he says it now, no, that day will come. You're going to step in, God. And that mattered to him, and it it calmed the turmoil that he was wrestling with up to that point. Now, now right away, after saying, yeah, Lord, I I know the day will come when you'll step in, he now is a bit embarrassed. He regrets what he, where his mind had gone before. Look at the next couple of verses. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He's still praying, remember, and he's saying, God, I'm not proud of where my mind went when I let myself be focused on the bad guys as if they were what mattered. And I, I regret what happened to my heart when I was doing that. I, I got embittered. I got hard-hearted. 
And so he says to God, I was a brute beast before you. I, I want to paraphrase that last line. I want to give you a very sound theological rewording of this prayer. Lord, I'm an idiot. That's a very simple prayer that Asaph is basically praying right now, and I hope you've prayed it. I've prayed it multiple times. If you've never prayed that prayer, I encourage you to, to use it. Lord, I, let's say it together. I am an idiot. Ah, it feels good, doesn't it? There's something freeing about it because it recognizes you don't have to don't pretend, don't perform. Be honest with God. God, I'm not proud of what I was thinking yesterday. I'm not proud about what those thoughts led me to do yesterday. I got all off track. I got all messed up. I'm an idiot. And the good news is when God hears that, he says, first he says, well, yeah. But then he says, you know what? I love idiots. I love people who get messed up. I love people who, who forget about me. I love people who get tro... tro oh, man. I'm sorry. That was a French word. I listened to French worship music yesterday. And my French brain is on, and I can't turn it off. <laughs> okay. So if it happens again, I apologize. I, I, God says, I love people who get so fixated on what goes wrong that they forget I'm the one who makes things right. I love people like you, God says. And then we can relax. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to be good enough for it. God loves idiots. That's good news. So, so this man, Asaph, discovered that, and he, and he was upfront about it. And then he went on the next couple of verses. And he begins listing what he loves about God. Remember earlier, he was listing what he hated about the bad guys. And there's 12, 14 verses of it. And now he's balancing that out. Lord, here's what I love about you and my connection to you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Do you hear the contrast with the first few verses? Do you hear the discouragement fading away? As he decides, instead of looking at the yuck that people do, I look at the good stuff that God does. And what is true of me because of him. And the list is great. I'm always with you, he says. Can we say this? Recognize that God's presence is one of his best presents? Let me say it again because I think it's clever. Ready? God's presence is one of his best presents. And when we relax in that, and, and celebrate it like David does in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I, wherever I go, you're there waiting for me. That's good news. And not only is he waiting for me, he holds me by my right hand. What an intimate picture. And what a great thing to tell God. God, I'm so glad you hold hands with me. I'm so glad you care about me that intimately. That you want to hold hands with me, your child. Next Sunday, I'm planning to speak at a little church in Indio that's celebrating its 70th anniversary as a church, and I've been invited to come and speak at their celebration. The church is within four hours of my grandson, so guess where I'm going first? <laughs> okay. So I'm going to spend a couple days in Southern California with them, and I, I, I can't wait for the time walking along the street that I'll reach down, and my grandson Corbin will reach up, and we'll walk along holding hands. Well, in Corbin's case, he likes to be on my shoulders, so <laughs> holding hands would be just long enough to get him up, up here. But either way, I'm holding his hand, and I know he loves that, and I love that, and I'm glad I've got a heavenly Father who holds my hand, who loves me enough and enjoys being with me enough 
that he'll hold me by my right hand. And as he holds me, he guides us. He guides me. You guide me with your counsel. That sounds an awful lot like the 23rd Psalm. Asaph's boss, David, wrote that one, of course. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. You guide me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. As hard as life is, can you imagine what it would be without a guide? What if we were left to our own wisdom? What if we left to our own choices? What if this book didn't exist and every man and woman did what was right in our own eyes? we, We know what that looks like. We see it in the news. But imagine if we were stuck there. Imagine if we didn't have a a book to guide us and a spirit to guide us. Imagine if God wasn't our wonderful guide that Asaph is celebrating here. Wow, we'd be in a world of hurt. And And then afterward, you'll take me into glory. As bad as this world is, Asaph now looks beyond it and says this world is not all there is. If it were, yes, let's all be discouraged. But it's not because there's an afterwards. And the afterwards is God with us forever. The afterwards is going to the place that he's created for the people who love him and are forgiven by the death of his son Jesus. There's an afterwards, and it's glorious. And Asaph lifts his eyes from the yuck of this world and says, wait, there's something better coming. And it changes everything. It changed it for him. It can change it for us if it's our destination as well. Whom am I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. Suddenly he becomes this treasure. He becomes this this valuable relationship that is the most important thing to the point where the next verse says this. Next verse says, here we go. My flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, life, yeah, life could get really lousy down here. I, I get that. But God, oh, two wonderful words. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's read this aloud together. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's one word there that is so rich, but to understand that word, you've got to understand the context of it. The word portion is a wonderful word, but in our day, what's that mean? Well, In order to understand what it meant to an Israelite who read it, we have to go back further in the history of Israel. We have to go back to the time when they were wandering in the desert. They just had left Egypt with Moses. And they're looking forward to a better day when they're not wandering. They're not camping. They're not dependent on this bread falling from heaven every day for 40 years. They can live in homes and they can build houses and they can have crops and they can have land And they knew the day was coming, next slide, when, guess what, we got a map. (laughs) I like maps. The day is coming when the 12 tribes of Israel would each be given a portion of the promised land. And they would settle there, and that would become their home. And so the word portion for them for a generation meant, I'm yearning for the day when I will have what I need When what I'm just longing for now becomes real, and that portion was the part of the promised land that would become theirs. And they all knew it was coming, and they were looking ahead to it. It, It's what puts strength in their step and and joy in their hearts, that my people, my tribe, will one day have a portion of the promised land. But if you're familiar with the names of the 12 tribes, you'll see one missing on this list, on this map. There's one called Levi. The Levites, the Levitical tribe, didn't get land in Israel. 
They were given cities to be in charge of. That's a whole different sermon. But they didn't get a a territory. They didn't get what the Bible calls an inheritance, not land. And uh, inheritance and portion were synonyms. And the reason they didn't receive that was because of what God said in Joshua 13, verse, I believe it's 33. But I'm not finding it. Yes, here it is. God said the Levitical tribe will not get a portion because the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. Think about that. Let that settle. God wanted one tribe to not be glad because they get stuff, to be glad because they get God. I understand that. Like many of you, my life required a lot of travel when my kids were little. And my wife and I had to make a decision. What are we going to do? Am I going to bring a present home? Every time I come back from a trip. And we decided, no, that was going to be by far the exception, not the rule. And you know why? Because when I got home from three days, five days, a week, two weeks away, I didn't want my kids to say, ah, daddy's home. Where's my present? I wanted to be the present. I wanted them to say, daddy's home. Yay, daddy, come play with us. Come sit with us. Come be with us. We love you, not what you bring us. And the fact that it saved me lots of money was beside the point. <laughs> no, but there was this dad thing in me that didn't want my kids to say, oh, great, and walk away with the gift that I brought. And God felt that way about Israel. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, is their portion. And Asaph understood that. That's why he said, God is the strength of my heart and my portion. He's the one I look forward to. He's the one I yearn for. Asaph got it. And so did the Apostle Paul in the next verse. In Philippians, it says, Paul says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. We won't go into the context there. But what is more, I consider everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing. For whom sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, It's great to be glad for what Jesus does for us. He died on the cross for us. He forgave us. It's great to revel in what he gives to us. Forgiveness and eternal life and the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God. Yes, enjoy all those things. But let's look beyond them. Not just from the, 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 what was done, but to the one who did it. Not just to the gifts, but to the giver. And to say, you know what? I know Jesus. And that's amazing to me. That he would want to know me is even more amazing to me. And that relationship matters so much. It's such, so central to our lives. And Asaph knew it and Paul knew it. And I hope we know it. To the point where Jesus, when, when he wants to describe what eternal life is, which is one of those gifts from God, eternal life, right? You know what he, how he defines eternal life? It's knowing the Father and the Son whom he sent. Eternal life is knowing God. It's not getting lots of stuff. Oh, stuff comes with it. Wonderful. Enjoy it. But it's knowing him and being known by him. That's what it's about. And that's why this relationship with him is worth every moment we spend building it and growing it and deepening it. That's why we say spend time in his word, not to check a box and say, I've been a good Christian today. But that's where he reveals himself. I want to know you better, God. And this is where you say who you are. Go spend time with him. Relax with him. Talk to him. Be honest with him. Pray to him. 
Because every moment we spend building that connection, building that relationship deeper and deeper and deeper, is us experiencing eternal life now. It's not waiting for us to die, friends. Eternal life has already begun because we know him now. And whatever we spend investing in that connection, investing in that relationship, is worth every moment we spend. Well, friends, we've gone on a journey with Asaph, haven't we? It's had some bumps in the road. It's had some rocks. There's <laughs> some challenges. But there's a few things I'm glad for us to take away from. I'm glad we're learning from Asaph's journey. We'll close with this last slide. Three lessons I hope we can walk away with today as we walk through Psalm 73 with this man Asaph. First of all, honesty with God is always a good thing. Asaph was honest. Now, again, there's no indication that he's praying these things necessarily at the beginning of the psalm, but he's pouring them out. He's not being the good Yahweh follower who pretends everything's great. He's honest. I don't get it. It's not fair. I don't understand, and I want to. You know, friends, my seasons of greatest growth in my own life have come when I dare to be honest with God. You ever yelled at God? I have. And he's big enough. He can handle it. And he loves me anyway. And he will you. So to pretend everything's great when it's not, where does that get us? Be honest. I mentioned Habakkuk earlier. He didn't get it. He said, God, why are you waiting so long? Why are you tolerating so much yuck? Why don't you step in and do something? How many times have we wanted to pray that in our own lives? God, why, why am I sick? Why, why am I childless? Why am I alone? Why am I broke? Do we dare be honest enough with God to go to him with those things? If we do, good things happen. It's always good to be honest with God. And one of the things that happens is when we turn to God, he gives us an eternal perspective. Now, I don't know how he wants to solve your problems. Does he want to heal you? He could. Does he want to give you that good job? Yes, he could. Does he want to take away the financial strains and give you more, more relaxed income? He could. But the biggest thing we'll get from him is this eternal perspective, looking at our life through a different lens, one that includes him, not excludes him, one in which he's recognized to be the God over it all, even the part we don't understand especially the part we don't understand. And for us to be able to say, God, if I were you, I wouldn't do it like this. Well, that doesn't change the fact that you're still in charge. And then the end of the journey of Asaph is the knowledge that, when we, have, that we have him, and it doesn't get any better than that. Because whatever we don't have that we want, whatever other people have that we wish we had, we have him. We have Jesus. We know him. I read a story recently about a, a pastor in Texas who was really discouraged. His name was Bob Roberts, and, and he, he was having a rough time in his church and his family, and everything was going wrong. And he's out with God, praying and, and pouring his heart out, and he's, he's break, doing everything Asaph did, but coming to God honestly and laying it all out and saying, God, you should do X, Y, and Z. You should fix it this way and that way and that way. And what he sensed God responding to him was this phrase. Next slide. Bob, when will Jesus be enough for you? Yeah. Wow. When will Jesus be enough for you? 
The cool thing is that when Jesus comes, he does bring a lot of other stuff. And when he wants to give it to us, we'll take it, right? But the question is a good one. When will knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, being loved by Jesus, walking hand in hand with the creator of the universe, when will that be enough for us? You know, friends, the end of our journey is this. The bad guys lose. God wins. And in between, we get Jesus. Lord, would you make those amens settle in our hearts? Would you build us into people who don't just know about you, but know and love you? Would you take the example of Asaph and make it our life? Because, Lord, we, we desperately want to have that kind of focus on you. Forgive us for being idiots and show us what it means to walk hand in hand with the God of the universe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.